Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's rare that a band has a career with two acts. It's not impossible. I mean, the survivors of Joy Division managed to do quite well as New Order. The Bare Naked Ladies were once written off before roaring back to life. And how many times has Black Sabbath risen from the ashes? I'll give you another one. Green Day. They'd run out of gas by the end of the 1990s and contemplated breaking up for good, but then they reinvigorated themselves with their American Idiot period and continued to do well. And then there's the story of Blink-182. By 2000, they'd made it to the top and were selling albums by the tens of millions. But then things started to go, well, sideways. However, like Green Day... Blink-182 was able to recover from that career nosedive, but not before having to endure some serious and literal casualties. This is part two of the rise and fall and rise of Blink-182. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. From the 2016 album California, there's Blink-182 with Bored to Death, and at almost four minutes in length, that's one of the longest Blink songs in history. It's very rare that they stray too far beyond the three-minute mark. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of our career-spending look at the rise and fall and rise of Blink-182. On part one, we got through most of the first rise, and we're not quite done with that yet. We left off with the Enema of the State album from 1999, a record that would go on to sell at least 15 million copies globally. And we can't underestimate how important this album was to the whole idea of pop punk. Yeah, they took a lot of heat for selling out and becoming too slick and too glossy to be considered a real punk band, but Blink showed a lot of up-and-comers how it could be done. No Enema of the States, and we probably wouldn't have heard too much from... Fallout Boy, or Newfound Glory, or Simple Plan, or Panic at the Disco. And Enema had an effect on emo. Emo bands moved away from being super intense, hardcore-influenced punk bands to being more melodic and poppy. Concert crowds for Blink exploded in size. The supporting tour for the Enema album was their biggest yet. The Mark, Tom, and Travis tour was set up like a drive-in movie theater, and other than a broken finger suffered by Travis when he stood up for his girlfriend at a tour stop in Ohio, there was this big fight at a Taco Bell, the whole thing was massively successful, bringing in about $7 million in gate receipts. And for the time, that was 
That was an amazing haul. A live album recorded during the last tour kept fans occupied and showed newer fans that the band's history extended further back than just this one album. The full title was The Mark, Tom, and Travis Show, The Enema Strikes Back. It was released on November 7th, 2000, and it featured highlights from the first three albums, plus a lot of the in-between song banter from Mark and Tom. It also contained a studio single at the very end. It was called Man Overboard. Man Overboard, the one studio track from Blink-182's first live album, the Mark, Tom, and Travis show, The Enema Strikes Back. As soon as 2000 turned into 2001, the group was back in the studio. They could have probably used a break, but everybody, including their record label, wanted them to keep going while things were hot. And oh, said the record label people, don't even think of trying something other than the pop punk thing that you've discovered. That's your sweet spot. Do not move away from it. Okay, makes sense, I guess. But this did set up tensions within the band. Call it creative struggles if you want. Mark was cool with making a record even bigger sounding than Enema. Tom wanted something more heavy and more punk. And Travis wasn't feeling particularly challenged by playing more of the same. When the band started basically demanding that they deliver a major pop-punk album in a hurry, Mark claims it was because the label's quarterly revenues were looking bleak and they needed a hit so that the executives could keep their jobs and maybe get some bonuses, the band rebelled. One aspect of this rebellion was a joke. When a group of people showed up to hear the work in progress, the band played them two songs. One was called F the Dog, and the other one was When You F'd Hitler which freaked out the label people, and not in a good way. They just turned up the pressure even more. Tom and Mark did not take that well. Mark left the studio and wrote what he thought would be an instant rejection, a cheesy summertime pop-punk throwaway just to piss everybody off. He put no effort into writing this song. He says the whole thing took about 10 minutes. That'll show them. They want crap, I'll give them crap. Well, didn't quite work out that way. The song became the album's first single and a major hit. The Rock Show from Blink-182, written in 10 minutes and intended as an F.U. to the record label, which kind of backfired, but in a good way, I guess. By the way, the song refers to a real-life club in San Diego called Soma. Tom DeLonge was also infuriated by the label people. He also went home and tore off his own F.U. song in about 10 minutes. It's about a date he went on with his now wife to SeaWorld. It ended up becoming the second single from Take Off and another major hit. So, uh, so much for showing the suits at the label a thing or two, right? Blink-182 and First Date, another one of those feel-good, goofy teenage angst songs that their record label was so insistent on having on the record. Tom says he had the Bee Gees in mind when he wrote that one. In the end, the album was a little heavier than Anima, but that didn't hurt things one bit. It was called Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Okay, sophomoric, but that's what everybody wanted, remember? It became the first punk record to debut at number one on the American album charts. And sales? Somewhere around the same 15 million mark as Enema. But in amongst the blatant hits, the band did find a way to get serious. One of Tom's songs was about how his parents' divorce affected him. 
One day he came home to find all of his dad's stuff moved out. He had no idea that there was trouble at home, and the whole episode scarred him deeply. This song is also an example of the band pushing themselves into new territory. They recorded an edgy video in which a wrecking ball going through a house acted as a not-so-subtle metaphor for a family breakup, and that video shoot was finished on September the 10th of 2001. But after the events of the following day, the wrecking ball idea was considered too um, well, destructive. The video had to be reshot, featuring some young people shouting in a huge empty house. Here's Stay Together for the Kids. It's hard to wake up when the shades have been. Take Off Your Pants and Jacket was released on June 12, 2001, and it became another massive hit. In fact, it's hard to imagine pop punk and pop emo becoming as big as they did in the early 2000s without the help of this album. And there was another side effect. Blink was paired with Green Day on something called the Pop Disaster Tour. Now, at the time, there were these monsters of rock tours featuring big stadium-filling metal groups. And I thought, okay, well, why not do something like this? Blink was riding really high, so it made sense for them to be on the bill. But Green Day was in trouble. Blink knew that, and they also knew that Green Day had opened so many doors for them. The band had had a good run and seemed to be on the downside of their career. Including them on this tour was a last-ditch effort to revitalize things for Green Day. And if it didn't, well, that'd be the end of it. But a really weird thing happened. The pairing worked better than anyone could have hoped. Green Day was introduced to a new, younger audience who accepted them as some kind of punk elder statesman. Things went over so well that their label rushed out a Greatest Hits album, which sold like crazy, giving everybody the faith to go back into the studio and try again. And the result of all that was the American Idiot album. And we all know how well that turned out. Meanwhile, Green Day's performances forced Blink to up their game in concert. They made Blink a better band. So... Blink-182 saved Green Day. But in a few years, it would be Blink that would need saving. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. By the time Blink-182 was finally through with their obligations that came with the Take Off Your Pants and Jacket album, they desperately needed some time apart. The pressure had made them nuts, and the internal tensions were way out of control. Tom was also having some serious issues with his back. Very painful. His herniated disc was bad enough that he had to have surgery. Best take a break from everything blink, which is exactly what happened. And maybe the best antidote to the tension and burnout was to try other things, which is, again, exactly what happened. First, we had Boxcar Racer. This was Tom's product and his chance to exercise his need to play punk that was dirtier and more aggressive. He never envisioned it to be a real band, instead it was just something to do while his back healed. He was in a lot of pain and not in the best of moods, which explains the tone of the material. He had to get all this stuff out of his system. Okay, fine. But then he asked Travis to be his drummer, which was okay for Travis, but it greatly pissed off Mark. He felt, for lack of a better word, betrayed. He knew the kind of stuff Tom was working on and liked it a lot. It had that old DIY vibe of early Blink. But Tom kept Mark at arm's length, saying that this wasn't a Blink project. It was his project, Travis's participation notwithstanding. All he got to do was sing on a couple of tracks. 
They were supposed to be the best of friends, and they'd never done anything but wrote songs together, and now this? Complicating issues was Boxcar Racer was the name of a band Travis was in before his time in Blink. And yeah, there was the story that it's an allusion to the B-52 that dropped the atomic bomb in Nagasaki. That's incorrect. The real origin goes back to Travis's old band. And given the record was produced by Jerry Finn, who was Blink-182's producer, you can really understand why Mark felt the way he did. But let's take a look at Boxcar Racer. They released an album, a concept album, that dealt with the end of the world. And it also dipped into the world of conspiracies, religion, the apocalypse, and the Masons. I need you to hold on to those subjects for a bit because they will come back later in this story. It started as an acoustic sort of record, not unlike the kind of stuff the Violent Femmes did. But as time went on, the music got louder and much more electric. It was finally released on May 21, 2002. A couple of singles were peeled away from the record, and this was one of them. It's Boxcar Racer and I Feel So. That's Tom DeLong with Travis Barker. In other words, 66.66% of Blink-182, together on a side project called Boxcar Racer from 2002. If you have a copy of the CD, there are all kinds of hidden messages in the artwork. For example, you'll see a sequence of letters and numbers, LNW1301. That's actually the longitudinal location of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Travis had his own muses to follow. He and Tim Armstrong from Rancid got together to explore hip-hop beats in a group called The Transplants. This band originated with Tim, who had been experimenting with creating beats on a computer. A band slowly coalesced around Tim, with Travis being the final part of the puzzle. There would end up being multiple Transplants records. The first came out on October 22nd on Hellcat Records, which was Tim's indie label. The first single from the album, inspired somewhat by the piano lines of The Clash's Rock the Casbah, did okay. And it ended up making a lot of money as the soundtrack for a shampoo commercial. Let's listen to that. These are the transplants with diamonds and guns. The transplants, which I guess we can call an indie punk supergroup, it's led by Tim Armstrong of Rancid and includes Travis Barker from Blink-182, who really loved the idea of being able to stretch himself by learning to play parts that were much more demanding than what he was called on to do with Blink-182. So that's what Travis was doing. Remember also that he did work with Boxcar Racer with Tom. So what about Mark? Well, he basically stayed on the sidelines, quietly fuming, which was not good. And when it came time to make the fifth Blink record, uh, let's just say that things could have been better. Complicating things was the fact that all three guys were growing up. They were all fathers now, and it seemed a little silly for them to be still playing songs about being goofy adolescents. Like all musicians, they wanted to grow. Tom and Travis had learned a lot about what they could do with Boxcar Racer, and they brought that attitude back to Blink-182. The sessions for this next record dragged on far longer than those for any other Blink album. And because Travis had touring commitments with the Transplants, he'd sometimes leave behind some drum tracks for the other guys to sort out on their own. They were also very, very picky when it came to recording each sound. They tried out over 70 different guitars, over 30 different amplifiers, and at least six different drum kits, rotating in about 40 different snare drums. 
They use Polynesian chameleon bells, turntables for scratching and looping, and old organs and cellos. To engineer part of the record, they hired one of the guys who helped sort out the wall for Pink Floyd, and he tried all kinds of different microphones and mic placement techniques. They even got Robert Smith of The Cure to provide guest vocals on one song. Bottom line is that this fifth album, the self-titled one that was released on November 18, 2003, had a different sound. Fans noticed the direction right away. It was more experimental and incorporated new types of sounds for the band. And it was a little darker, a little more mature, dare we say a little more adult. Let's examine that idea. The first single was Feeling This, and it's the first song the band wrote digitally, which is to say that it was pieced together using software. There were four different drum tracks happening here. They're all edited together. The cowbell was used as a joke, but it turned out okay, so they kept it. And here's another thing to listen for. We hear Tom singing his vocals really, really loudly and off-key before the chorus. He's actually at the end of a 30-foot-long room with the microphone about 15 feet away. Let's take a listen. I got a regret right now. I'm feeling this. Feeling this, the first single from Blink 182's fifth album, the self titled one from 2003. That extra, by the way, was a mistake. The engineer had set up the studio to fade out the song at the end, but forgot to apply that command to the vocals. When the band heard the result, they said, nah, just leave it. Sounds like the Beach Boys. That's cool. Here's another example of where Blink was at with this record. The second single was I Miss You. As a standalone track, as a single, this one ended up selling half a million copies on its own. If the rhythm track sounds familiar, it's because the inspiration came from The Cure's 1983 hit, Love Cats. And if you listen closely, you'll hear that there were no electric instruments used here. There are up to 70 layers, but everything is acoustic. Blink-182 and I Miss You. There were two more singles from that fifth record. And then, um, nothing. That's where we'll pick things up next. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. Blink-182's self-titled fifth album featured four singles. And the last single seemed like, uh, well, it seemed like the last single period. But we'll get to that in a second. The song was their tribute to the 80s with its synth sounds. And for some fans, this was the best song on the album. It's called Always. The tour that followed the release of the fifth album was called the Dollar Bill Tour. It began with an all-ages club tour where tickets were sold for a dollar. Another part of the tour featured a golden ticket contest where one fan won a private concert. Pretty cool. The road trip lasted all through 2004, with the last show being in Dublin on December the 16th. There was supposed to be another leg in early 2005, but over Christmas that year, something went wrong. The old tensions were back. No one was talking to each other. And we knew it was serious when their management put out a special statement on February 22, 2005, announcing that the group was going on, quote, indefinite hiatus. Let me read you this statement. 
For over a decade, Blink-182 has toured, recorded, and promoted non-stop, all while trying to balance relationships with family and friends. To that end, the band has decided to go on an indefinite hiatus to spend some time enjoying the fruits of their labors with loved ones. While there's no set plan for the band to begin working together again, no one knows what tomorrow may bring. Wow. Pretty ominous, right? Well, it was, and it really wasn't a hiatus. The band had broken up. Tom wanted to take six months off to spend with his family. Mark and Travis thought six months was too long. Tom wouldn't budge, so he quit. And that was the end of Blink-182. Or was it? Okay, that's a dumb question, because we know the answer. But so much of what came during this breakup was so fantastically crazy, it's amazing that the band did get back together. And that's what we have to sort out next time. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. The Blink-182 story is so dense and complicated that we have to devote a huge chunk of the third and final part of the series just to what happened when the band had broken up. Then there's the reunion that followed and the final split with Tom DeLonge. It's, like I say, weird. And we'll see if we can sort it all out next time. I'm available through email anytime at alan and alancross.ca. There's more in this show and many other things at my website, which is a journal of musical things.com. And if you visit, you should sign up for the newsletter, which will deliver you a solid chunk of music news and information to your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. And if you're a Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram person, so am I. We can connect that way. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 